welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Coda Payments. Game developers building their free-to-play monetization strategy have a daunting task when considering security, payment methods, user experience, and global expansion. I'm here today with Neil Davidson, Executive Chairman at Coda Payments. Neil, how has Coda Payments helped games teams drive greater success? We like to say we help mobile game developers think outside the app when it comes to monetization. That's because outside the app, they can collect payments from their players at half the cost or less of doing so through the app stores. Coder Shop is our global marketplace for game currency and in-game items, trusted by tens of millions of gamers around the world. And developers that want to accept payments outside the app on their own websites can use Coda Pay, which allows them to support hundreds of local payment methods globally with a single integration. Whether our partner leverages Coda Pay, Coda Shop, or any of our other solutions, we offer local market insights, provide live local language customer support, ensure tax compliance, and manage fraud risks. If your listeners are interested in retaining more of the revenue they generate, I hope they'll get in touch with us at Coda. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Neil. And if you, our listener, are interested in learning more about how Coda Payments solutions can take your game to the next level, head to codapayments.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the weekly roundtable. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, as always, some great panelists, Aaron and Felipe here. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. Happy to be here. Yeah, hey, cool. Philip, I hear you uh, doing some hiring. Yeah, yeah, we have opened some some positions, so we are looking like uh, specifically for a lead game designer, a senior game artist, to join our uh, studio that is in early stages. So these roles will be part of the core team. Uh, we are focusing on hybrid casual games, uh, puzzle games, uh, with this setup or mentality, I would say. Uh, and yeah, so looking forward uh, to, to seeing like applications because like we are really doing fun stuff and I think it was, it's going to be something that uh, everybody could enjoy. So I want people like to join in, in this venture with me. Uh, and just a quick question, is, it, is that remote or on-site? Uh, we are working rem- hybrid from Barcelona in Spain. Cool. Awesome. Well, where can people go find out more information about that? Yeah, I think we have posted the, the the jobs in the in the Navic newsletter, so they can. Find okay. It. Well, hopefully everyone listening subscribed and they get that, and you can see. Uh, yeah. I believe it's at the end of the digest usually. Yeah, every yes. issue got our got our cool. job board. Awesome. Well, so make sure to check that out and and see. Uh, you know, just out of curiosity, if nothing else, right? Cool. Well, hopefully you get those filled quickly, and uh, you know, some good some good talent out there, especially with uh, unfortunately the amount of layoffs we've seen lately. Definitely might be some good ones to scoop up potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, on to other news. Uh, we have uh, quite a few news topics today uh, and some interesting stuff. Uh, Monster Hunter Now uh, came out from Niantic, so we're going to cover how that launch has gone. Luda managed to raise some money for AI stuff, so that's still happening. Esports, 
not in a great place at the moment. We're going to cover a little bit of that. And uh, Counter-Strike 2, though, did manage to launch and kind of forced its way into everyone's uh, Steam accounts, pretty much. So, yeah. Cool. Why don't we just get started on how Monster Hunter Now did? Yeah, so I can kickstart this one. Um, and really, what I really want to do is just highlight a piece that Moni wrote for Novic Digest uh, a few days ago about Monster Hunter Now and its launch. And of course, our partners at Data.ai were super helpful for capturing for capturing all of that data here. So, so props to them for enabling us to do this well. But uh, really, in short, Monster Hunter Now, which is Niantic's latest title, um, as of the beginning of the month, is now Niantic's fourth largest title after just like two weeks um, you know, on, on the market. And as of a couple of days ago, it had officially grossed $15 million, which you know, will surpass Pikmin Bloom's $20 million, uh, <laughs> in no time. So it's a pretty, for, for Niantic specifically, it's a pretty great uh, start and something they haven't, this kind of success they haven't seen in a while. And this is notable partially because we've been critical of Niantic the past few times we've talked about Niantic on the podcast it's been more with a skeptical eye or more just you know being saddened by you know some of the games that were either getting canceled or came out and didn't do well because it wasn't a great fit for a location-based AR-based type of experience but uh with uh Monster Hunter now uh they're doing a lot better. And so what Manu did in his piece really well uh, was just kind of laying out, you know, why this game succeeded when so many others failed. And for one, you know, similar to Pokemon Go, there's a strong genre IP fit here. Players roam around various to various destinations and fight monsters. So a location-based element works more here than in other IPs. And then second, the focus on Japan really seems to be working out. Monster Hunter is obviously very popular in Japan, and the development team here on on the Now game was wise in designing aspects of the game, like avatar selection for that audience. They also had a super popular showing at the Tokyo Game Show, and now 70% of Monster Hunter Now's revenue comes from Japan. So they unlocked that market really effectively. And lastly, the game just stays pretty authentic to Monster Hunter. Uh, Manu kind of framed Monster Hunter now as a diet Coke to Monster Hunter's Coke, and it kind of makes sense. Uh, even though there's, there's, you know, there's monsters, there's a storyline, there's an RPG element, um, and even though the RPG element and intensity is rather light to serve a broader mobile audience, it might not be the best fit for all the hardcore Monster Hunter fans, but it still is, um, you know intriguing a bunch of them and it's widening the funnel for who could be interested in monster hunter so uh it's a win so far obviously it's still very early we have to see what retention looks like what their live ops are gonna look like uh but it's definitely a win for niantic and so i think it's worth calling out and and celebrating uh i don't know if i'd go so far as to say they have their mojo back and you know their their next game launches from here are gonna all be you know just as successful uh but it's a big deal for them to have a successful game, and not just for the game's sake, but also because games have been the funding mechanism and, and part of Niantic's broader AR mapping vision, which is really interesting, but naturally just takes a lot of time to play out because we're not all walking around with AR glasses yet. So they're biding their time for AR to really have, have its moment, and the games are a good bridge to that. So I thought that was a, a really compelling uh, story of the past 
couple couple weeks and excited to see them doing well. Yeah, a couple thoughts on that. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So, like, I mean, a lot of the IP of most of their games has been like Japanese based, right? With Pokemon, uh, even Pikmin. But then, like, you've seen ones like uh, NBA that's not really obviously Japanese focused. Uh, it, you know, obviously a couple, couple of those did well, a couple of those did poorly. We we did call out that that it was likely Monster Hunter was you know the one that, that had the most chance to be a success because it was a good right. fit. And and I'm glad to see that that panned out, right? Like, so that does, I think, give Niantic like at least uh, an understanding of like, hey, maybe we need to make sure this is like a good fit before we try and like just do this licensed property and then lose it because it doesn't work. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to see that. But I do wonder also though, you know, you mentioned the Japan focus, if Japan's geography makes a difference, right? Uh, so they, you know, they're, it's a very small territory. They're used to kind of actually doing, taking advantage of that with, uh, for example, they'll have like the Nintendo Switch games that would, uh, you know, have like the ability to play with other people nearby that they've done back in like the DS games. So like they could take advantage of kind of being this sort of more crowded, but like only slightly spread out island uh, and that sort of like close proximity. Uh, whereas, you know, the US, for example, is very spread out where it's like, you know, the coasts have a lot of population, but then the middle can be pretty sparse. And I, and I do wonder if any of that factors in to these location-based games working or not working in terms of like the social aspects or like the, you know, the battling over territory kind of aspects like you have with Pokemon gyms. Um, and, and this one also didn't seem to, at least when I played through a little bit of it, didn't seem to have much of the AR aspect or at least didn't try and default to it. It was definitely focused on the location-based aspect instead. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. Um, not too much. I mean, I think it's just a really popular IP in Japan and it lends itself to location-based gameplay better. And it seems like Niantic has just learned some lessons from the past. So kind of the trifecta of that enables it to stand out more than not. I think you're right that these kinds of games do better in more urban areas where there's just more people with more places to go and battle over or explore. That makes a, a lot of sense. But, you know, obviously there are a lot of cities <laughs> worldwide, so it's not it's not just about that. But Japan also, you know, they are a high spending country on games too. So if you're going to double click into any any region, that's not a bad one to to make your bet on. Yeah, I think it also makes sense to now thinking about it that, that both Pokemon and um, Monster Hunter are kind of like open world style games. Whereas like obviously the NBA is not an open world style game, right? Because it's just basketball court. And then Pikmin Bloom was never really, to my understanding, much of an open world kind of game. It was more kind of level based. Um, so maybe that's also like an important thing because in the sense of the location based like thing mapping correctly to the game's central sort of uh, sense of like exploration and and the way content is is like you know provided to you like Pokemon for example you 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 had a tendency in that game to kind of wander around and find encounters and obviously that made sense same thing with Monster Hunter whereas the other IPs they've done maybe don't have that so much uh, and so that that might be something as well to look out for in future Niantic titles like hey how much of a match is there with even the location based aspect. Uh, to the original IP that they're that they're going with it because there's like I believe there are a Marvel one still slated as well if I remember correctly I think so I don't I'm not super bullish on that for the location based reasons but yeah I guess I guess we'll see right like how future IP does because it's you know Niantic seems to also be kind of a technology company in a lot of ways and kind of pushing their their lightship SDK and stuff like that and I don't know how much like they've actually been able to get people to to use that uh, for the most part because obviously they need to kind of have successful demonstrations I think be able to pick that up. So I guess we'll look and see. Like maybe this will actually be a big thing for Niantic to kind of get some more people interested in using this just hopefully with good fits. But we'll, we'll find out. I don't know about the Marvel one. Like I said, not, not super bullish on that. But 
we, uh, we did have some fundraising though coming in. Like there's still trickles of it, maybe more in the single digit millions, but Luda managed to pick up some money for their AI training game. Sim. Yeah, exactly. So more, more race of uh, AI company. Uh, in this case, Luda is an AI company that allows anyone to craft AI agents, uh, with like Lego like building blocks. Uh, like they cl- claim to do this, like, Quite easy for, for like, so any, anybody can, can do that. Uh, and kind of like introducing a new category of social experiences where like you have a kind of playground and you can create your agent and like see that interacting with the world, but also interacting with, with other agents. So they have raised, uh, seven millions, uh, to support its work, uh, leading by Bitcraft mentors and compound. Um, and they, they were presenting like a new uh, system called real-time reinforcement learning that allows users to make these AI creations interact with the real world, uh, like, in, like without any lag and, and without having to code or animate uh, them in order to, to perform the actions. Um, and um, like uh, the, the company believes and also the investors uh, like have a, a stress that they, they part of the reason that they have invested there is because they consider that these agents are ideal for UGC gameplay and uh, as any user can create them and like this could create like a really a new way of interacting and, and playing. So like a new category, let's say, of, of games. So, well, interesting, interesting to see what they, they come out with. Uh, they haven't like really so much, just a uh, few videos, like showcase what, uh, like very simple, how the, the thing could be, but, uh, like not, not much detail on that. So, well, more companies racing from, from AI. So I think like, uh, it's definitely the, the hot topic, uh, now. And they, they were saying that they, they've been like working on this stuff for quite long. So there were people like working already at Google five years ago on like this type of uh, technology, uh, to enable the, what they, they are showing today. So what, what are your thoughts on, on more AI, more AI companies racing? Like, <laughs> well, like this I, is a different type of AI too, right? Yeah. I was just going to ask, um, by AI agent. Uh, like, what exactly does that mean in in practice? Is it like an NPC? Is it something else? Like, like what? Like, what do you think? Like, the end result, product wise, yeah, is really going to look like? It's kind of a like I would say like it's kind of a character that you can like create like uh, I think like very basically you can define like the the shape and then like the the agent understands the shape in the sense like uh, do I have wheels? Then I like I'm rolling over the floor or do I have legs and I can like step and jump and like do other stuff. And then they interact with the, with the 3D world. So they can like in the video, there, there is a basketball ball and the, the tiny avatar like runs into the basketball ball and like kind of stumble into it. So this is what I think like they are referring to agents. So I am understanding that you could create like several agents and they can cooperate or they can like interact with each other but also like each of us could be joining and creating our own agent and then like this is kind of your representation of the of yourself in this world so that's why they are maybe stressing about the social part of social component on this and maybe also if you could like i don't know uh, create different uh, environments then that's 
about like what is the EGC component. So you can create like an environment and different type of characters that interact with each other and being something that is like been just uh, pleasant to, to watch, right? It's not interactive, but it's pleasant to, to see what's the reaction, what's happening. Gotcha. I mean, I'm I don't really know what to make of Luda specifically. Uh, I guess we'll see what they what they come up with um, and and how it how it works when it's when it's all live. Um, I mean, I think I like the idea of pointing AI towards like user generated content. Like I feel like there's a ton of opportunity to unlock there. I mean, user generated content, it's it's been all about democratizing creation in some kind of way and AI tooling is an accelerant of doing that. And so it kind of, you know, opens the floodgates further for people to be able to create all sorts of interesting and wacky things. Most of it's probably not going to be interesting, but if if it, you know, exponentially and it enables people to create much more, um, then a, a larger amount is going to be um, really interesting uh, to come out. So mm-hmm. I think that th- this framing is kind of compelling um and it's in contrast to what we've seen with other companies like inworld ai um which i did an interview with them a while ago and of course they're focused more on like serving like big studios and publishers and that kind of thing and integrating their more ai npcs into you know big open world types types of games um one question that i did ask them that i have been thinking about and i'm curious to hear your guys thoughts on this is um, especially like the NPC part, is this a disruptive innovation or is it a sustaining innovation? Meaning that if it's a sustaining innovation, does it just make everything that's going on better and you get more better of kind of the same thing? Or does it actually like create something new, like new genres, um, new types of game experiences Etc. And I haven't been able to get a great answer to that question yet. Um, and maybe it's a mix of both. Uh, but either way, I'm not. I'm not completely sold. So I'm curious where you guys fall on how AI falls in that disruptive, sustaining innovation continuum. Yeah, I think like I, I agree that it could be both. And I think like for me, I see that more as a tool. And then you can use the tool for just like. Uh, in- slightly improvement and quality of life improvement and what it already we already have or it could be really a game changer and it depends on how how well you leverage on the on the things that uh, this tool can offer uh, to really build like completely different uh, immersive experiences but this is still i would say early days so i feel like this is something that we could imagine happening in the long term, but it's still like a lot of technology and uh, uh, adoption, right? To to get there, I feel like uh, all this uh, area is moving very fast and we see like new tools, new applications day to day, but we need to keep up with that speed, right? In order to be able to generate and leverage on that, like uh, to create experiences that really are up to the capabilities of, of the technology and that will take time. Yeah, I, I think it's funny. It's funny to think about it with NPCs, like looking at what NPCs generally do in most games, right? They're either there to deliver like text lore, pretty much like pieces of like world content or quest givers, 
primarily, right? They're, 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 they either you know, are a fiction generator or they're something that's there to facilitate gameplay in some way. Uh, I don't know if they, this changes much in terms of the quest giver side of things, but in terms of like the world fiction kind of things, the ability to be a little more responsive I think is the interesting part here. So where there's like a little bit more room for customization. Like it makes me think back to even going back to like, you know, the old Nintendo, Super Nintendo RPGs where you put in your name and then like the, the, the characters would use your name in the sentences, right? Like that was kind of like the early sort of responsiveness to something that the user did. But obviously very canned, kind of mad lib, fill in the blank style. This technology, I've seen a couple companies starting to integrate this sort of thing to allow the game itself to customize content a little bit more. Um, like uh, even Ubisoft's uh, use of the Bark stuff that they, if you remember that they were talking about that a while back, I think at GDC, where they were using it to help write uh, Barks, which are, for those who aren't aware, like the kind of call outs the NPCs, especially enemies will do, where they just kind of shout stuff uh, to stop it from being kind of repetitive to extent, like because generating a lot of that is kind of problematic. And so I think in some areas like that, where content either needs to be like kind of trying to avoid that sort of repetitiousness that happens a lot with, with uh, NPC dialogue or just to customize it to people, to customize it either to like stuff that they've like, uh, stuff how they have in their inventory, stuff that they've done, uh, party members. Like there's lots of little things that can be tweaked uh, to that player and even like their, their name. And so I think that stuff is like the obvious use case where it starts to just be reactive in like a very controlled way, right? Where it's, it's like just one step above procedural content, basically. And I think that's that's probably the safest bet is to like go, hey, procedural plus, really. Like procedural, but where we don't have to predefine everything and write all these algorithms. We could have some stuff that's like on rails, like respond. Gameplay mechanic-wise, that's where I don't I don't know that there's like necessarily a way you could do this unless it's the type of game that is okay with being a little chaotic, right? Where it's okay that like this doesn't help progression, that things might go totally off the rails. I mean, we've seen a lot of bad AI in games and how sort of like game breaking it could be, how disruptive it could be. Obviously, when that's AI generated and like not even necessarily pre-programmed, that's much more likely to happen, I would think. So that I think that area will be, if they're trying to do that with these kind of games, that could be really pretty problematic. And the thing that kind of like screams potential problem out to this me uh, from the Luda race is the, the idea of real-time reinforcement learning. So most of these things haven't had like real-time learning. They're just like using content and then generating content off of that. But it's not like learning anything new, right? Like you're not adjusting the, the AI's models in any way. Like no new learning is actually happening. It's just kind of, you know, read-only. And so if they're actually talking about like modifying the game based off of stuff players do, that's where it starts to get really iffy in terms of like people really messing with it, it, it doing really unexpected or potentially offensive things. Like the guardrails have to get a lot better with that sort of stuff. And like we can't even do content moderation properly for kids. So that seems like dangerous territory. But again, that's just a word they're using. And like you said, they haven't really detailed a ton of it yet. So let's kind of wait and see on that. But anytime they're talking about real-time learning, I start to think back to that, you know, Microsoft bot on Twitter that got turned into Hitler in about a day. Uh, it just becomes very problematic. So I, I do hope to see these things, though, even if it's baby steps, because I think content like can get boring very fast. And like that's a big problem for players. Like that's why, you know, roguelikes are cool, for example, right? Because they procedurally generating new content, but like that doesn't work with a lot of other game genres. And this offers at least some flexibility for some areas of that. So I'm hopeful, but I am also pretty skeptical of of raises like this towards stuff that's very like lingo driven, where they like coining a phrase and trying to sound smart. But I know uh, Bitcraft is pretty heavily into like a lot of AI stuff, and so in, in games, and I'm not surprised to see them leading this. But I do think they do a pretty good job like looking over stuff. So uh, I have a little bit of faith in that aspect, I guess. I don't know. Just really curious to see how this goes because uh, 
we, we are probably going to see the, these kind of AI raises for a while, right? If, if there's still money to deploy in games and Web3 is not it and there's not like anything else really kind of popping off, like you got to pick something that's like a potential for a huge disruptive technology if you want 100x that, right? Yeah, and I agree with, with Aaron. I feel like I've seen like many companies uh, working on AI focusing on like, like creating a product for another company to be able to uh, like produce in our case, games faster, better, whatever, but not so much focusing on the end customer. So I feel like uh, more and more we are going to see uh, more companies focusing on this, on like serving the the customer, not the companies, uh, to be able to to leverage on AI to like create their own experiences or like enjoy experiences better. Yeah, my my last thought on this, um, and part of why I was asking the disruptive versus sustaining innovation question is just because even like as like an investor, like how do you view this market and what you should fund? If if you think it, it much of this is going to be a sustaining innovation, sure, maybe you can create some tools that will be sold to companies, sort of SaaS like or or whatever, and you can have you know small tuck in acquisition exits or something. But if it's sustaining, there's not really a big platform shift. There's not really like a big transformation in the way things are made. It's it's a tuck-in um, technology, and so like where does a industry, a new industry defining companies come from uh, if it's sustaining? If it's disruptive, like what is the disruption going to be? Is it going to be some new type of genre or gameplay that we haven't seen before that gets unlocked? Um, if so. Who really wins? Probably more like the game company <laughs> in that case, or someone who can like pair like creating the end product with technology. Maybe not like the middleware in between. Um, and so I've just been sort of, you know, I'm not privy to all of the conversations that all of these venture capitalists are having with all these companies to see what's coming down the pipeline. So I'm definitely blind to a lot. But I've just struggled to answer that question in terms of like, okay. Where is like the next really big idea that facilitates some type of like tectonic shift that's going to be that next like multi billion dollar company? And not sure I've I've seen it yet. Yeah, I think this is this could go a little bit into like how Westworld is right, like the series. So like really like being in a in a world where like you're like uh, surrounded by uh, NPCs that really behave like humans. So it's not like I need to go into this world and either play with NPCs, like Devin was saying, like our like program to behave like this and this like uh, the cases that would happen and like what is not there won't happen. Or I need to wait for having like other people being there and really interacting like uh, human beings, right? Like, like there could be like uh, worlds where you have both things happening at the same time, like and not needing anyone else. So then that could be disruptive different type of entertainment. But that's not so. an AI company. That that's still <laughs> it still is more like who's making the thing. And maybe it's vertically integrated, but like that's what I haven't been able to wrap my head around. Anyways, <laughs> we should move on to other topics, Stephen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I just just was one last thing. It just keeps making me think of uh, when we're talking about user created content or user generated content to use the specific acronym, I guess. Um, it, it and trying to make that easier through AI, it makes me think of Spore a lot for like what that tried to do with like democratizing like sort of the 3D modeling aspect of like the the creatures and things like that. Like tried to do a lot of that, and I'm like, I wish Will Wright was doing some of this stuff with the with the AI. I'd love to see what he'd pull out of it, but I think he's still kind of stuck at his Web3 project at the moment. So we'll see how that goes, but. 
I, I would like to see it applied to that. And, and we also have to keep in mind, the only two real proof of concepts of this AI advancement stuff that we've seen is like the, the language stuff and the art stuff. We really haven't seen like a lot outside of that that proves like AI has really made those big leaps forward. So I think outside of those two areas, like it's, it's good to be skeptical until we see some good outside proof on that. But uh, speaking of the audience interacting with games and influencing them, esports has been in a kind of an interesting place as of lately. We've talked about it, I think, a few times, but there's been some some big shifts as well. Uh, probably the biggest one here with uh, the OWL, which is Overwatch's league, uh, just kind of imploding a little bit, uh, like basically getting shut down for the moment to kind of rethink it. Uh, I was going to say always, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, a, a little, little bit, bit. right. Well, because they, they say they're going to like relaunch it, right? Like this is just kind of rethink it, but uh-huh. this could just be like the end of it, right? Realistically, it was always kind of a forced league. Let's be honest. It was kind of like a, I mean, esports is built off marketing budgets, right? It's, it's uh, you know, a big advertisement for this is a competitive game and we're going to try and create, you know, brand around it and all that stuff. But like, it never really like it was it was kind of a casual game to be forcing competitive on and then like they tried different ways of doing it and they were all like i i don't know i mean maybe wrong but i I feel like they were all kind of forced and so this is maybe kind of an inevitable thing here that that was going to happen sooner or later with it and then i feel like a lot of esports seem to be kind of going this direction where just maybe they're not as sustainable long term as we were hoping like you know even like my own bias kind of watching what's, what's happening with Rainbow Six Siege, which was kind of the one of the ex- unexpected esports. Uh, it's been running for quite a while, but I, I'm kind of also seeing that trending downhill a bit, running into a lot of problems. I don't know what the budget's like for it anymore, but obviously I mentioned before that 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 game is one of the few hits Ubisoft has had consistently providing earnings pretty much year over year, like helping keep that company alive. And the esports, while it probably isn't the big driver of that, is definitely a contributor to some extent. So I'm, I'm kind of curious whether or not, like, for example, Overwatch, uh, the Overwatch League is actually contributing to the bottom line because this is happening, keep in mind, in the middle of like trying to transition over to Microsoft, right? Where they want to, like, they, they wanted to make a good impression, but they kind of waited till the, the, the deal was inked and passed all the tests and everything to kind of be like, okay, now we can shut this down, right? Because I'm sure they wanted to look attractive to Microsoft as part of this deal. And, you know, Diablo 4 is part of that as well, where now it's kind of like down like 99% of its player base. Uh, but it looked great at the time, you know, during this acquisition that's taken forever. So it's just one of those trends. And I think the the one to watch for me with these is what happens with Riot's games, right? Uh, obviously the big one, League of Legends, but they also have other ones like uh, Valorant that they've been trying to launch. So I think that's the thing to watch is whether or not Riot can even sort of sustain its esports ecosystem because it's been one of the big spenders in that category, you know, fighting for things like, you know, g- good pay for players, uh, all those sorts of things that cost a lot of money try to run those. And, and I think even Dota is just kind of coasting uh, from Valve and stuff like that. So are you guys any thoughts on uh, esports in general is kind of falling apart here? Sure, I can start. Uh, my take is simple. If something is not sustainable, it won't sustain. Um, and so we've been going through a reset of things that aren't sustainable. And that makes sense. And it's going to continue to go down that path unless um, you sustainable models are put in in place um and um i've been preparing for an interview that i'll publish next week with the co-ceos of esl face it group which will be really interesting i'm looking forward to it uh, but in preparation i was looking back at a couple of previous interviews that we did um this year with other leaders in the esports space one with nicola point jameson who was uh ceo of evil geniuses and more recently john robinson who's uh, president and COO of 100 Thieves. And in both of those interviews, we asked them, if you could change one thing 
and the world of esports to make your lives easier, what would it be? Nicole's answer was media rights, which has still sort of been a mess and around all of these games and not uh, standardized in any kind of way. Um, and then uh, John Robinson, his his answer was uh, just pointing out the fact that, well, the structure doesn't really work. And so, like, if you want to, you know, come up with a more sustainable structure, you need to, like, get everyone's incentives aligned. And currently, um, the publishers have different incentives from esports organizations and, like, others in the esports space because they view it more as marketing. Um, they're not actually trying to profit off of esports itself and make it be a sustainable business on its own right. And so he actually did compliment some of what like ESL was doing with CSGO um, in terms of like, like, you know, like they're running CSGO tournaments, but they don't own CSGO, but they still have to find a sustainable way for, for them to sustain a business and for everyone else to sustain a business with them. So if you change the structure, you change the incentives. Um, and so... I think that's directionally right. Um, and I'm curious what the ESL face of guides will uh, say about that too. But in my view, like I think it's just a structure reset that's needed that <laughs> clearly what has been going on hasn't really been working, but maybe under a new structure with more aligned incentives and just more thought put into like cost um, will we'll come out better on the other side. But it's definitely esports winter for now. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's been difficult to really kind of even find continuous viewership and, and profit from that viewership and stuff like that. It's, it's definitely not the same as like, you're not seeing people pay for pay-per-view like you would with traditional sports. You're not seeing people go to the physical events at the same like level that you would, but also like we're in kind of a weird global environment where these games are not necessarily like localized, like say the NFL is or the, a lot of these other physical sports that tend to depend on physical location outside of something like World Cup or Olympics or some of these other ones that are a little more global. And so it's, we have this kind of weird thing like Overwatch tried to do this sort of like local teams based off cities, but then the players were like never from those. So you had some really weird mismatches of attempts to try and match traditional sports and esports, like, you know, franchise models and all these other things where like we're, we went through a lot of iterations to try and figure it out. And like you said, maybe now it's just we kind of got a clean house and reset it a bit. Uh, but, but one area that I found interesting that I've seen, uh, you know, talking to people at PlayStation and things like that uh, around their sort of like esports scenes is the idea of like, at least in the US, one thing that does seem to work kind of well, at least at a very small level, it, rather than like the hugely televised, you know, arena level is as sports games, uh, you know, running like FIFA, Madden, those kind of things at like more local grassroots level, smaller tournaments, not trying to make it this big televised thing, which is ironic because they're just digital versions of those physical sports. So like technically they're imitating it far more than the esports are. Uh, and, and in a way that like the incentives are, are weirdly like aligned, right? It's still, you still have the publisher who's involved, but it's also mimicking a real sport probably with licenses outside of, you know, EA's recent FC game. <laughs> which is in a, in a weird place with that. So we'll see how that one does. But uh, it's, it's, it's kind of going back to the old school esports, which was like more grassroots tournaments, local tournaments, uh, you know, people just playing it because they like the game, they understand the game. Everyone knows how to watch those. You don't have the issue of like with a lot of these games as a new viewer to esports. You have to go through this sort of period where either you already understand the game really well or you have to learn it when you watch it. Regular sports, not as hard. And most people kind of know them to an extent. So you got to watch, let's say they were, you know, to televise a local tournament of, you know, FIFA or Madden or whatever, you, you, you get it, right? You'd be like, I know this sport, I can tell what's going on. The commentators don't have to do as much of that lift. 
So it's, it's kind of interesting to see that. And I don't know if that will really grow above that level, but there is at least some level of esports that like makes a little more sense, I think. And those obviously have a franchise model to keep going for the financials of that, right? So it's not necessarily advertising in the sense of like, let's try and sell a DLC or in-app purchases. Let's try and keep this game extend uh, its lifetime as a game as a service. Instead, they have the annual model. So it's, it's a very different business model around the game as well. So, so that was interesting. Like, just some different things that are kind of working. I don't see those being necessarily adopted by the bigger games, uh, like the kind of games as a service competitive games. But I think maybe, yeah, maybe we do need to figure, figure out a better model. But uh, I mean, at least Valve is like seems to be doing okay with this kind of hands-off approach, as you mentioned. Just kind of be like, hey, you, you, tournament organizers can run what they want. The publisher isn't necessarily trying to run it the same way. And maybe that is like what we go back to. Where it's just like, hey, you guys do kind of what you like. Here's some rules. Follow these rules. Do these things yourself. Just don't tarnish the game, and uh, and run it as a tournament, like with your own profit model, with your own sponsors, with your own like, rather than making that a marketing vehicle for the game so much. I mean, it's done quite well for Counter Strike. Uh, and speaking of which, Counter Strike Two got uh, kind of it was it was beta for a while and kind of got really kicked out there, maybe a little uh, too aggressively in uh, it mentioned the, the idea that uh, it was also. The original was delisted. So, you want to crack into that, Felipe? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, uh, I commented on 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 this news uh, a few months ago when Valve announced that they, they were going to launch Counter Strike Two. So they they released it like a few days ago, and uh, as you said, like uh, it has been felt a bit like of a rush. Uh, like uh, it was hearing some jokes about Rush V, like uh, tourists doing Counter Strike. So kind of like the, the approach that they've taken it. So let's let's recap the summary of major major changes that uh, they have they have added in Counter Strike Two compared to Global Offensive. So they are using their well, a new game engine Counter Strike Two uh, is using Source Two game engine, uh, which is a significant upgrade from the, the Source engine. Like uh, it's, uh, results in improved graphics, performance, and and physics. They have updated the maps. So several of the classic Counter-Strike maps have been updated for Counter-Strike 2. And these updates include like new visual effects, improved level design, and bug fixes. Uh, one of the, the major improvements is the subtick system. So Counter-Strike 2 uh, features a new subtick system that allows uh, for more precise hit detection and collision detection. So basically, you have like um, like the the actions that the players are taking, like being synchronized with the server uh, uh, much more frequent, frequently. Uh, so this uh, enables to, to be more precise on what the actual, what actually happened in the, in the gameplay and who, who killed who uh, first uh, and resolve this uh, more properly. So players are really satisfied with, with the, this improvement. And the latest one, probably the most visual one, is the responsive smokes. So now smokes in, in Counter-Strike 2 re react more realistic to, realistically sorry, to the environment and the player movement. And also like now you can shoot through uh, smoke uh, and then create a hole where you can see uh, through it. So kind of like changing the, the way of interacting with the smoke the, as we, we know from the past. and. As you said, it's been a replacement of CSGO. So I guess that uh, people at both, they didn't want to like split their user base uh, between the, the players going for the previous because they, they want to still like 
to keep what they had or the status or whatever, uh, they, they migrated everybody to the new one. Uh, indeed, there were complaints because like this wasn't really properly announced and there were tournaments that were being held on CSGO and then suddenly you couldn't play any longer. So they needed to decide like what to do, like what to try to go to uh, some pirate servers and, and finish the tournament or like move into CS2. Uh, there are also been complaints uh, because like there are some content uh, being lost uh, as of now, at least like as, as some game modes that haven't been created in CS2 yet and also community created maps that are not available yet. It's also not working on, on Mac. Uh, I saw some jokes about it, like uh, it's a bad news for the two players of uh, Mac uh, of Counter-Strike, but well, still like uh, it's, it's something that, that some places still there. I, I guess that if they, they did the move without having Mac version ready, it's because like it's not going to create a big impact anyway. Uh, but this is more on the complaints that there is still like, Things that uh, it felt that it was rushed, like it wasn't really finished, uh, and probably people questioning why they did the move. If like the uh, global offensive was working really well uh, still, and, and they could have waited a, a little bit more to to finish this and properly uh, launch it. But on the other hand, the response has been really, really good. So uh, more than one dot five million. Concurrent players were playing, uh, I think, on the first day, on the first couple of days. Uh, that was massive. So to to give a, an understanding of, of the, the scale of this, like among the top 10 uh, games with concurrent players, like uh, Counter-Strike 2 had more than the other nine together. So it was really, really massive. Uh, I heard also some uh, unconfirmed, like... Uh, data that they made like 40 million in opening loot boxes in the first 40 minutes. So it's like a million per minute. Amazing. That's insane. It's insane. <laughs> really insane. Was there new content or something for people to be opening that or were people just like that excited? I think that there was new content. So they had like migrated all the content that they had before, so the skins, the, the weapons and everything, uh, people were uh, preserving this when migrating to the new new game. But I, I guess that they were having like new stuff uh, with these loot boxes. And I guess that what was, what was creating this uh, craziness. Yeah, I don't I don't have that many thoughts on like CS2 <laughs> in, in general, other than like, yeah, I mean, it seems like a transition that's going relatively smoothly. They're like leveling up the look and feel of the game for, you know, just future proofing it a bit more. But man, the case openings part of that, <laughs> of your notes, Felipe, is like just what leaked out to me. And so I was Googling a bit and I, I was seeing that um, earlier this year, it was reported that um, Valve makes about like $54 million a month on average, just from like these case openings. Um, and it's probably gone up since then, because I was also seeing that there was like a like one month uh, where players spent over 100 million on on these cases. So like in general, like this is probably one of like the most the best like gaming businesses out there, just CSGO cases. Um, like that's just insane. 
Um, and still, like, everyone knows CSGO is big, but, like, that still is, like, pretty underrated, um, if you ask me. But is that even money though that's under... Or, like, transactions on it, just to be clear. Like, how are they making that money on the cases? Uh, I don't know. I can go go figure that out. I think it's, like, cases being opened. Like So, like, the keys? I think so. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, because then and, there would just be also the, trans- or the market fees on top of that, which would be even higher. Yeah, which is like the other piece of that. Like that was just like the case openings, but then there's the marketplace that builds on top of that. So it's like very an underrated business. But yeah, Felipe, what you were saying about like making however many millions and however many minutes, like that's that's like next level um, insane. So obviously that's not sustainable, but it really just shows that CSGO players, they're into these freaking cases. So good on Valve for figuring this out. Um, there's probably something here that others can learn from, from what Valve is doing. Uh, hopefully not every game turns into just a bunch of yeah, these like loot boxes. Um, but wow, pretty incredible. I got to wonder if some of the case opening like frenzy was also people like uh, hoping to either get stuff that's like very exclusive to the early launch, meaning like maybe it gets taken away later or whatever. And like, there's never an opportunity again. And this was like the OG CSGO two stuff basically, or that there's bugs in the, in the loot boxes that they could exploit early on. Right. There might even be some that, that people caught on to. And it's like, Hey, let's open as much as possible before Val catches on. Could be those kind of situations. I mean, there's a lot of possible factors there, but I, I got to imagine like people are trying to take advantage of the situation in some way or another, or think they're going to to really be doing that, or they're just really that excited. But I, I don't know if it generates that much. But I guess, you know, when, when people hear numbers like that for, for the case openings and the profit, like, you don't have to wonder why Valve doesn't make that many games. Like, the amount of money. But it also does make you think, like, why don't they try and make more games that use these, like, case kind of things? And maybe they could be making significantly more money uh, because, again, they, they make the money off the game uh, through the, the case openings, and then they make the money off the market which they also own and get, you know, transaction fees off of. So it's a very lucrative thing for them to be doing. And how much maintenance have they really had to do on that game over time? Like, it's going to be, I mean, I don't know how much they make too off of like Dota 2. We haven't really even dug into that. That's another one that's just kind of been somewhat coasting for them for a while that they've, they've got to be making good money off of. Team Fortress 2, I think, did okay with for them for a while as well. But let's see, maybe slow down a bit. But it's, it's just interesting as, as their sort of business model with the games that kind of are a, a games as a service that they do very little service on, right? Like it's it's a weird game because, you know, we're used to games as a service. It's like live ops, live ops, live ops. Like every week, people got to pump it out content or your game's just going to die. Whereas Valve's just like, no, nah, we're good. We'll, we'll put out some new stuff for people to have in cases. We'll put out some new cases. That's going to be like the lowest level effort profit model for like games as a service that anyone is like, just the cost to benefit ratio. It's got to be insane on those. And it's, it's interesting like to, I mean, cause they inherited that game's success from like a modder basically uh, that they picked up and, and it's, and it's too bad they didn't find a way to monetize like some of the other games they picked up like portal to the same extent. But I mean, you look at the steam charts of the game right now, like which kind of got like merged counter-strike go one and two. And it's like, it's, it's only picked up. Like it definitely did not lose players from from dropping that. But I do I do want to and maybe you know this Felipe, if they uh, delisted CSGO one because of the the sort of fragmentation they got when they first launched CSGO, it took a while to really catch on because you had people stuck on 1.6 and on source. And I know there's some other ones like Nexon has their weird counter strike and there are some other ones, but generally people like a lot of people stuck on CSGO, I mean CS one point six 
And I imagine they were like, we can't have people dragging into this new economy. We need everyone in this one game. I mean, do you think that was a big factor in it? Definitely, definitely. I think that that was like kind of the learnings that they got in the past and that they tried to prevent that happening again with this new one. So I, I completely think that's that was the reason. It seems kind of risky, though, when you're like, uh, I know they didn't change the game a huge amount, but definitely the competitive scene. Like, I mean, you mentioned the the the, the actual events that already got kind of screwed up by that. Like, I hopefully they worked something out with Valve where they could maybe host an old like build or something locally. But it's it's a situation where you're also changing some important dynamics. The smoke stuff you mentioned, like maybe doesn't sound like a huge thing, but anyone who's watched CSGO competitive, smokes are a huge part of the game. Right, they they drive a lot of the gameplay in the early and mid game in terms of like who moves where and like a lot of the dynamics of it. And all of a sudden, you could punch holes in that, and the way it billows is different. And like that's it's going to be a pretty big deal. I mean, I haven't seen like CS:GO two competitive esports, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that impacts those. But then you also got the level design changes. I mean, this is a game that's infamous for having one map pretty much dominate the game for years with DE Dust, right? Where like people don't seem to like change too much in this game. They like to really refine one map. And so you take out some of those community maps and some of the other maps, you revise the classic maps, change the, like, I mean, it's cool for seeing a meta shift, but if I know anything about pro players, they hate change. They hate having to like learn something new, having to work at it again. Uh, I mean, the audience loves it, right? But the, but the pro players, uh, I got to imagine, are like really not happy about having to like this forced transition into into like new things they have to learn you know but again this is as i mentioned earlier this is like valve is kind of a little more hands-off with the competitive scene so they can just kind of be like well sorry you know like they're not the ones running most of these tournaments so i, I kind of wonder if that dynamic is a little more okay with them because of that situation but i, I agree but I, I would say also that um that they have been like kind of doing a navy test right like they had like uh, open a, be- a beta for small percentage of the population uh, that they were only being able to play CS2 or probably these were able to play both CS2 and CSGO while there were other people that were kept playing only CSGO. So I guess that they understood and that's why like although we see risky to to do this this thing this way and rush it in, in such manner, they probably saw that the engagement with CS2 was high enough or even like even better uh, and that's what probably they did this this rollout this way and like at this time right so probably uh we, we need to 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 think to believe that they are really smart people there because they for sure they are and they have analyzed all these details so probably they they've analyzed like okay what is highly engaged players what are tournament players like what's the behavior are they sticking to csgo while we opened uh, cs2 or are they playing more on cs2 and Right, they saw that that was like really working for them. I mean, obviously they have a ton of analytics, right? Owning the whole platform that it runs on and everything like that. Plus, like you know, explain that the amount of data from the game sounds like it's a lot more. So they should be able to, yeah, to do a lot of data mining. I would imagine. I also wonder, like the big question I have is so like uh, CS:GO is also kind of infamous for cheating, right? Like not necessarily because Valve does a poor job at it, but because cheaters are very incentivized, or like the, the cheat developers, right, to continually sort of win that arms race as much as possible. I do wonder if like the engine change and the technology shift has any advantage against cheaters. Like if like at the very least, if this disrupts them for a while because like the engine being different, maybe the cheats they're using don't work anymore. They have to scramble to fix that. Uh, if this could be a big advantage for players like looking to avoid cheaters, like because that could be a pretty big deal for a game that tends to deal with that a lot. Like a lot of people, especially, you know, just with, with the game being like free to play, like 
you can create account after account, uh, stuff like that. You have this, you know, they try to deal with the status systems and it, it seems like a complicated problem to solve, but I, I mean, I, you can't just engine change, right? All the time to kick out cheaters. But I, I do wonder if this could be a significant advantage, maybe even a factor in why they forced the switch just to possibly like shove everyone into a, a new space uh, and force the cheat developers to catch up. I mean, they're, they're, I, if I remember correctly, Valve's been known to like sue cheat developers and things like that um, and, and like try and deal with that as much as possible or stop that. But I mean, that's you know one of those battles you can't always win. But yeah, really look forward to seeing how this goes. Like this is kind of early, I think, to get metrics on it. But I think it'll be for the whole industry to see like whether or not this is a good thing or bad thing for a company that's been very successful for a long time and a game that's been, you know, we're talking about esports dying. Like this is the oldest esports game that's still active, right? At this point, basically, I mean, if you consider it, you know, from 1.6 or whatever onwards uh, as one game, like this is because I, I don't think many people are playing StarCraft 2 competitively so much anymore. So I'd say this is probably one of the longest running. So it, it's kind of funny that we're talking about all the newer ones, you know, falling apart. And the oldest ones like, hey, no, we just released a new version. We're still going strong and we're still the top game on Steam, you know, with like a billion players almost uh, active at any one time. It's, I don't know, it's and the amount of money being made. So I don't know. Hopefully some lessons can be learned for these other esports games uh, from this in some way or another, but Valve does kind of keep a lot of stuff kind of tight to the chest. So we uh, we wanted to uh, also end things here on on kind of a fun note. Uh, we, we got a little trivia from Aaron here. He's got some questions. We're going to see, uh, see see how quick we are on the draw, I think. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how this is going to go, but, you know, it's a light news week. We try things out. Let us know what you think. But I got a trivia showdown for Felipe and and Devin here. It's a bit smaller group that we were aiming for. Um, but you know, it'll be a one-on-one battle. Um, and we'll see who the ultimate victor is. But here's how it's going to work. I have 10 questions that I'll run through. They're all about the business of gaming. Um, I'll ask the question and I'll give you 10 or so seconds to type your answer into the chat that we have. And then when I say go, hit enter so that the message goes through. Um, we can see what everyone says. It is a competition, of course, but feel free to keep it lively um, and active if you want to discuss options or try to sabotage each other's answers. Um, and, and that short 10-second spans that I'm going to give or so, uh, for every answer you get right, uh, you'll get a point. Or some of them, whoever's closest, uh, will get will get the point. And at the end, we'll see who has the most right answers. And of course, the winner wins eternal Novik Gaming Podcast glory. So uh, the reward is definitely worth competing for. Um, and for everyone listening, you know, play along. Why not? Let us know what you think. But also, you know, if you uh, if you outscore any of these fine fellows or underscore, let us know. Send me send me an email or send us an email at podcast.novik.co or hit us up on Twitter with a uh, Hashtag I beat Devin or something something like that if you want to, to flaunt your victories. <laughs> or hashtag I lost to Devin if 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 Devin comes in clutch today. Uh, well, we will see. Um, but let's go ahead and kick it off. I hope you guys have the the chat open. Um, first question, question number one. According to Circana, what is the best selling console PC game? of 2023 you guys have 10 seconds there's some some big options out there no googling googling is cheating 
um, in this example. If you don't get it right, we'll go with uh, maybe a second round. But you guys have your, <laughs> do you have your answers locked in? Yeah. All right. Hit enter. Go. Nope, you were both wrong. So Devin said Zelda, oh. Felipe said Baldur's Gate 3. I'll give you five more seconds to, to give one more guess. Um, and if not, I'll go with whoever was closest. Five, four, <laughs> three, two. It's a hard one. There was some one. big ones. Enter. Nope, st- not Starfield God of War. The answer is Hogwarts Legacy. Oh my but, goodness! Um, yeah, yep. That's the best-selling game of 2023. Um, kind of a, wow. I mean, the Harry Potter Wizarding World IP has been very underutilized for years, and so it's it's, so. Living, it's also yeah. There's been some bad Harry Potter games too. It seems like, so it's living its moment. But number two, um, is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, um, and mm. so I'll go ahead and give Devin close points that point Not there. Point. <laughs> I was I was yeah, feeling that one because that's I'll a one platform, a you know. <laughs> like, half a crap. point sounds sounds good for this one. You get All half right. a point for that, Devin. Question number two. Take it. Uh, according to Data.ai, what was the number one grossing game on mobile yesterday? I mean, we all know what the the biggest mobile games are, so. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if someone got this right, at least on number two. But let's lock it in. Hit enter in three. Two, one, go. It's not Genshin or Candy Crush, guys. Ooh. You you got this. I'll give you one more one more shot. Uh, uh, let me see if I can give a give a hint. It's yeah. it's a relatively new game. It's not it's not one of these these uh, classics of many years. Let's give it one more shot in five. Four, three, two, one, go. <laughs> Monster Hunter. No, yes, nope, it is, it is not Monster Hunter. So top, it's a new one. Yeah. Uh, the answer, Devin, you're not going to put in a number two. I st- you know, I don't know, man. Like, That's fine. The answer is Monopoly rough. Go. Really? Uh, yeah. I, mean, I expected that. Yeah. And then um, Royal Match is actually number two. And then wow. Candy Crush. So new games are starting to take over the tops of the charts, but there you go. No one, no one gets points on that one. Feel free to 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 teamwork with each other if if you need for for some of these. <laughs> I don't think either of us would have dug up Monopoly Go out of the or Monopoly now. Um. So the the next two might be might be a, a bit harder, and so I'm actually gonna maybe whoever is the closest on this one um will will win. Um, out of all of the gaming companies that are over a $500 million market cap, so basically just all of the big gaming companies, what is the best performer on the stock market over the past three years? <laughs> I'll, give a, I'll give a hint. They don't make games. All right. I'll, I'll, give, I'll let you guys... Give give a shot here. You look. You puzzled. really threw us off of that one, man. Like the, they don't make games. <laughs> All right. Well, five, four, three, two, one, go. No, it's not Roblox. That's a good guess. They haven't even been public three years, though. Devin, do you have a do you have a guess? I mean, Unity. 
No, I don't think they've been public three years either. No. Um, I'll give I'll give one more shot to you guys. Think Does think about the memes. Yeah. Think about okay. the memes. <laughs> no, no, it's not Facebook, Devin. You got this. I believe in you. Memes, I know man, you what? know this. I probably do too, and I'll feel stupid the minute you say what the answer is. All right. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and say the yeah, answer. Bust it out. The answer is GameStop. GameStop is the best performing like games industry company of the past. Ah, uh, you were years. counting retail. Come on now. Well, I told you they don't make yeah, games. But you know what? Yeah, I see. I see the memes now. That 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 much is obvious. That, that movie just came out too. By the way, I don't know if any of you guys have seen it on uh, the, like Dumb Money on the whole like uh, Reddit GameStop thing. I haven't I seen it yet. But on I'm, it. I'm kind of looking forward to it. It looks fun. The Good ultimate meme stock, yep, yeah. is uh, is GameStop. But if you guys answered Sega, which is the the, the next one, <laughs> I would have given that. But I wasn't expecting anyone to get that one. I'm kind of surprised Sega, you know, too. Like, I mean, they they I feel like they've kind of spread out their stuff. But I, yeah, I guess they're doing pretty good, like picking stuff up. They've been on a, a quiet roll. Um, I mean, right. they're on arcades. Yeah. So the next one, the next <laughs> next question. Feel free to teamwork. However, you guys need on this is the flip side. Out of all of the these large companies, what is the worst performer? <laughs> all right. Five, four, three, two, one. Zynga? <laughs> Facebook. Is that your answer, Facebook? I said I, said I hope Facebook. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not Facebook. Facebook's like more than doubled in the past. And I don't know. They, they should be punished for their spending, but they're not. So. But Do you have a guess, Felipe? Well, I, I, I was thinking Unity, but you said like it hasn't been public for so long. Yeah. But like, it seems like they they have uh, really like lost like a lot since they 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 do the IPO. They have lost a lot. It, I don't think Embracer? they've been public. <laughs> they haven't been public three years. Embracer is close. Is close. Really? Okay. It's close. I'll give you guys one more shot. Think close to Embracer. What could it be? Whoever says it first wins the point. Ah, oh, it's on tip of my brain too. Don't want to think of the name. Still front, Felipe, you got it. There you go. Oh, nice. Yeah, because if you think back, three years ago was like the peak COVID height. So everyone was bought in on the MA strategy. Um, and it's unraveled. Yeah, before Embracer like took over the podcast, still front was the other one. So I just couldn't remember the name off my good job, Felipe. Yeah. Nice. Well, there you go. Um, so number five, currently, take two Zynga is the largest gaming deal of all time. And with and if Activision Microsoft goes through, that'll be the next one. What is the largest deal after those? So the third largest gaming deal of all time. It's not it's not Bungie. No, it's not Zenimax. Whoever gets it next, whoever gets it first wins. It's not King. It's not. Wasn't these the are all close. No, what was it? I feel like it's a big company buying a mobile company, though. Like, I feel like that's gotta be it. It is. It is big, big mobile acquisition. Who else was it? It's been a while. It's been a yeah. while. I'll give you. I'll give that hint too. You guys got this. It's not Peak. I, I don't think Peak's been acquired yet. Um, Trying to think right, of give, the other ones before that. <laughs> I'll give. I'll give five more seconds before I'll just just say it. Five, four, three, two. Last chance. One. <laughs> eh. The the answer is Tencent acquiring Supercell, 
They acquired eighty oh, percent for it was like eight point six billion, I want to say. So it valued Super Salt like ten billion at the time. That was twenty sixteen. So it's been a while since yeah. that one happened. But mm. yeah, big big deal. All right. How 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 was that compared to like the Riot pickup from Tencent? Riot was pretty small com- comparatively, I think. Um, I can actually maybe look it up right now. Riot acquisition. Yeah, like for comparison, sense. right? Because you got like mobile games and then like someone who's got this giant ecosystem around one game somehow being much cheaper. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I might have to dig. So they didn't buy 100% of Riot, but I think they bought mm-hmm. a majority stake for 400 million at the time. Nice. Right. Yeah, I don't know where you're counting majority stakes, but you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at some, some point, it feels like we'll be counting uh, Ubisoft under their acquisitions the way things are going to. So, so no one got that one. Um, this this isn't looking great so far, Felipe. I have a point for you, mm-hmm. and Devin, I have half a point for you. So, <sighs> listeners out there, I know I'm sure there's one of you feeling really good right now, getting your hashtags ready. Uh, but let's go to number six. In the first half of t- 2023, Winch venture capital firm invested the most money into games startups. All right, five, four, three, two, one, go. Yep, you both, you both <laughs> my, got it right. It okay, I was going to say my sec- second answer was um, uh, Animoca Brands. <laughs> <laughs> Animoca Brands, uh, they're not... They've just been throwing money around. Yeah, I, I don't think they would be considered like a... Yeah, in the same category per se, but I, I guess no, pretty not. pretty high. Um, I'd so, say A16Z still ranks like at this point as well, not just the beginning. It seems like yeah, Bitcraft was pretty close at number two. Yeah, um, that was, was this one as well. Um, and Makers was number three for the first half mm-hmm. of 2023. Uh, if anyone was was wondering, getting getting ready sense. for future trivia rounds. Um, <laughs> all right, how about this so, one? And this one is who gets the closest wins. What do you what did you say, Felipe? That we split the point because we both guessed. Or... <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you both the full point. Why not? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Enjoy your point. Um, all right. So next one, whoever gets closest wins. As of the latest quarter, how many average daily active users does Roblox have? It's a big number. I'll let you I'm just gonna put, put my in a first guess. guess. It's probably wrong, but. Let's get throw it out there. Probably both of them are wrong. Oh, oh probably okay. way too low. So, so Devin, you guessed 15 million. Felipe, probably you guessed 300 million. The answer is 65.5 million. So, Devin, you you are closest. It's a Price big number. Price right rules? <laughs> I I your... MAU. Sorry, I, 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 oh, I'm... MAU. Yeah, that makes sense. You made gotta, me really think my answer closely. was way too small, Felipe. <laughs> 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 I'm like, crap, 300 million. I hope, hope it's not that. It's crazy. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. They are multi-platform as well. Got to keep that in mind. And now they're going to be on Quest. So, or on Quest already. All right. So it's it's getting close. Devin has two and a half points. Felipe, you have two points. Um, so question Ooh. number eight. Uh, what are the top three best-selling video game franchises in history, in terms of of units sold, um, so I'll let you put in your three guesses. Put them in like back to back, like your grouping of three guesses, and whoever has the most right out of the the three, it gets the point. So I'll let you think about it for five to ten seconds. Five, 
four, three, two, one. Let's see what you got. All right, Devin, you guessed GTA, Final Fantasy, and Mario. Um, Mario is in that list. And Felipe, Pokemon, Mario, Harry Potter. Pokemon is also in that list. I wasn't sure if we could put Mario because Mario is like in like 50 million different franchises. So I wasn't sure if that was a valid answer. It is is valid. I uh, I think Mario is number one. Let me see if I can pull it up. Mario is number one with 832 million units sold. Wow. Um, Tetris is number two with 495 million. And then Pokemon is Is that counting like all the the weird like spinoffs that they did as well, I assume? Uh, I'm not positive. I actually don't know. Weird ones? Most of it, Hmm. almost all of that is just like the mobile game paid downloads. I think of, I don't even think these are all the variants. Um, It's just Tetris was very popular. Um, So, Felipe, you win the point. Um, And for those interested, Call of Duty is number four, GTA is number five, FIFA is number six. I forgot about Call of Duty. Dang, should have thought. Yeah. So those are. I feel like GTA was just pulled up by the by GTA five. Like on that one. (laughs) Well, the tables are turning. It's now Felipe with three, Devin two and a half. Well, that's because GTA six hasn't come out yet. It's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there there you go you should have thought that through uh so number nine including handheld hybrids and home systems what is the best-selling video game console of all time i'll give you five four three two one and go i'm totally wrong but i just that has answered something you're both wrong it's not the switch and it's not the playstation i bet it's the original game boy one so uh let me see if i can pull this up so the switch is number three and the playstation one is i don't even know where it is on the list it's not okay it's number one two three four five six it's number six so there's it's hard because I want to guess older ones, but I don't think people bought as many units back then, right? So it's hard to like go off of time for that one. It's tricky. Yeah. So I'll give you give you one more guess, um, and whoever gets it right or closest um, wins. So again, this is handheld, hybrid, or you know, like full home console. Mm-hmm. Yes, Devin is the Atari, <laughs> the Atari Jaguar. So is- um, Obviously, that was definitely. <laughs> All right, so the five, links, maybe. four, <clears throat> three, two, one, go. Let's see what you got. Uh, know, so, Felipe said PS3. One. Devin said the Nintendo 64. So, I the think winner, I'm probably pretty off with that one. The winner is still Devin with the Switch at number three. So, I'll give you a, a half point for that. You didn't quite nail it. Um, number I'll two the is the, the number two is the Nintendo DS. Actually, uh, which sold 150 more, four million. Number one See, is I the PS though, two. I I thought about putting the DS, but is that counting like the different versions of the DS, or is that just the straight original DS? That's just the straight original DS. Okay, the, not the 3DS. Um, right, because there was like DS Lite. There was all these other like DS versions. So I just want to make sure. So yeah, number one was I was the gonna PS2. go with Virtual Boy, but you know. And PS2 and Nintendo DS are pretty neck and neck as number one. And the Switch isn't done yet, so I don't know if it'll get to surpassing those. Uh, so the others are at like 154, 155 million. Nintendo Switch is at about 130. So I don't know if it'll get to the number one spot, but... Maybe once that Super Mario Wonder comes out. 
I know they got to get selling quickly before Switch 2 comes out if they want to top the charts. So, Devin, I'm going to give you a half point for that. And you know what that means. You both are tied at 3-3 with one final question left. And the final question for you all is, again, whoever is the closest wins. All right. And so, um, let's see. Uh, Devin... Actually, let me ask the question first. Um, at the time of recording, how many published episodes of the Novic Gaming Podcast are there? And I think um, for reference, Seven, you can confirm. I think this is our 116th yes. roundtable episode. So right. you have that information to work with. Right. Which, uh, which, which shows are we counting here? Are we counting all the every interviews? Episode. Are we counting all, everything? Every, every episode, episode that we've had. Uh, Okay. I'll give you I'll give you a few seconds to think about it before you drop it into the chat. But this is the tiebreaker. Who is the biggest right. Novic gaming podcast fan of the of the panel? Uh, I didn't know the answer. I had to I had to look it up myself to come up with it. So don't feel bad either way. But five, four, three, was, two. Was the question three? Was the question? <laughs> <laughs> How many episodes of the Novic gaming podcast? have been published as of the time of okay. recording. So not including this episode. All right, let's see it at five, four, three, two, one, and go. Felipe, I just told you that there were, <laughs> we're on number 116 of just this this segment. He thought you said uh, MAU. I understanding the question. So I don't, I, that's what I asked because I wasn't understanding it. Uh, Watch him okay. still be closer than me. Uh, I'll let you give one more guess so that you fully understand. So... Again, how many episodes of this podcast are there with the information that we're on 116 of this one? This okay. okay. So, yeah. I'll let you throw one more guess in. Basically, is it over or under 265? Yeah, <laughs> is, I'm, is I'm sticking with mine. I, I, feel, I feel confident about that one being close enough. I mean, if, if Felipe goes 264, I'm going to be upset. Okay. Uh, Price I, is I, right. I, I higher. You're going to go higher? higher? Yeah. So drum roll, please. (laughs) There are, of the Novic Gaming Podcast, 245 episodes. Oh, so close. I actually 250 and I revised it up too. (laughs) So Devin, you you clutched it out with this win of the inaugural Novic Gaming Podcast trivia showdown. I hope you can fully bask (laughs) in its glory. Um, we gotta again, do more of the who's the closest ones. That's apparently my best game. Yeah, we should we should do more of that. I probably had some that were too difficult. Um, I can't I can't get the right answer, but I can always get head. close to it. Right? That's that's all my half points. So, anyways, some good learnings from doing this yeah. run through. Um, but, anyways, thanks for for bearing with me as we gave that a shot. I uh, hope that was a, a fun way. It's a it's a lot of episodes, though. That's for sure. Like uh, that's fine. that's pretty good. Well, there you go. That's all you got for me, Devin. Cool, cool. Well, like good times. Hope, hope uh, you at uh, the listener at home or wherever you are got a few of those as well. Definitely fun. I will have to do that again sometime. Uh, hopefully, with some more contestants for me to beat with those. Who's the closest? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, thanks for that, Aaron. Cool, cool. Well, uh, thanks, of course, to both of you for joining, uh, and of course, the listener as well. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, to all two hundred forty something episodes. We got to get up to three hundred now. We got a new goal. 
So we're just going to have to crank out a whole bunch more interviews and crypto corners on, uh, you know, on the side with these. So make sure you're listening to those as well. If you're a roundtable listener and aren't aware that we also have uh, other great shows, make sure you're listening to those, as Aaron mentioned. He's got a great interview coming up. Uh, we, we've got a lot of interviews putting out with uh, some great content, different format than this, obviously. So, and of course, you know, again, I like to repeat this every time because, you know, people get discover this and, and don't know. You make sure you're going to novic.co and uh, subscribing to the Novic Digest. Great, great content. We're continuing to ramp up that content and quality, all kinds of good insights, data, all kinds of all kinds of awesome stuff. So make sure you're checking that out. Uh, even if you don't read all of them, at least subscribe so you can catch the ones that are uh, of your interest. But uh, again, thanks to everyone. Make sure also that you hit us up uh, at our email if you've got any feedback, comments, questions. You want to brag about your score uh, privately as not on social media? It's fine as well. Uh, it's podcast at novic.co. Again, just for those who aren't familiar, it's novic spelled with two A's. So it's N-A-A-V-I-K dot C-O. So make sure to, to hit us up. We always love to get some good feedback. But in the meantime, enjoy your weekend. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.